Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. My guest today is Nathan Williams, who's the founder and CEO of MindSpider, a blockchain system for tracking responsibly sourced materials along the supply chain. MindSpider today works with the likes of Volkswagen, Minsoor, and others to bring greater transparency and traceability to global supply chains. Nathan himself is a blockchain expert who's designed the MindSpider protocol and has facilitated blockchain workshops as a visiting expert for UNICE and the World Economic Forum. He's been featured in Bloomberg, Forbes, Huffington Post, Wired Germany, and others. And I'm very excited to have this conversation today. So welcome, Nathan. Thank you very much, Anita. It's great to be on the show. <laughs> Absolutely. So Nathan, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile and it is very clear that you are just an entrepreneur. I mean, everything from founding a bead company to a number of other companies. So you've always sort of been in this innovation and, and startup scene. And I was curious actually to first dig into your childhood to understand what is it that inspired you to found companies and to be an entrepreneur? You know, uh, it, it's hard to say. I, I can definitely list a bunch of factors that sort of pushed me in that direction. But I, I remember always wanting to be an inventor of sorts. Uh, I remember you know, working on, on television at, uh, at different cartoons about inventors tinkering in their workshop and coming up with things that would change the world. I remember when I was probably about, I don't know, 10 or I, I was like, you know, what would be great is we could launch rockets to the moon and mine the moon for, for materials and expand out into the solar system because I was big into space back then. And my dad was laughing at me. And here we are today. And there's planetary resources that exist and SpaceX and people are actually thinking, how could we get off the planet? And I, I remember so much of just being a, a bit of a big thinker. And sometimes my thoughts got, you know, too big. But I always was trying to figure out what's, uh, what's something I could try. Do you think there was innate to who you were or was this because of some teacher in your school or your parents? There's definitely a combination of some internal and external factors. I grew up in a small town and in the small town, there weren't a lot of options. And so some of the, I guess, influences that taught me to think bigger were friends who had moved out of town, mm -hmm. friends who had moved to the big city, friends who had moved to Toronto, because I, I, I grew up in a small town in Canada on the East Coast, where most people worked in the tire factory. I was from a more advantaged position. My father is, uh, was a medical doctor and my mother is a nurse. And so we had uh, a bit more exposure to different scenarios than maybe if uh, I had grown up the son of a laborer. But at the same time, you know, when your guidance counselor at your school suggests, you know, rather keeping your expectations maybe a little lower and going to the local college and things like that, it really does help to have icons that you can look up to. And for me, it was people who had moved away who had around the mid 90s been part of the the Canadian, it wasn't a dot-com boom. It was almost like pre that there was a tech boom in areas like Ottawa, mm -hmm. where uh, I had a friend who was hired out of school before finishing his bachelor's and was earning quite a decent salary. And I was like, ooh, I, I wonder if I could be that way. 
Yeah. yeah but, but a lot of it was undirected until I was in my mid-30s. Like I, I did start some uh, entrepreneurial ventures quite young. None of them were exceptionally uh, successful. And I eventually went back to school in my 30s to get my MBA because I wanted to figure out how does one actually run a successful business as opposed to trying things that sort of work, but have, but I can see why they're not working, but I can't see what would I would fix mm-hmm. to make them work. It's almost like a machine that has most of the parts in place, but there's one part that's missing, but you don't know how to fix it. And so that, that was really the turning point for me was getting my MBA. And after getting my MBA, my wife and I moved to, uh, because friends had left. And so we were like, we don't want to stay where we are. But we also saw that there was a big tech scene in Germany and we wanted to be part of it. That was, that was the, the impetus for that move. Well, that's good to know. I mean, there are a lot of us that sink a ton of money into MBA. So it's good to know that there's a payback in, in terms of inspiring an MBA. So that's good. Okay. Well, so let's move from there. You've now come to Germany. Um, How did you get into blockchain? It's almost like blockchain came to me. I started a software development business and I sort of stumbled into what I was doing. I moved into regulatory software, which is a weird niche. Everyone needs their niche. And and mine was regulatory software. And I stumbled into it because of the luck of people in my network having specific needs that I could make took place. And so that was the beginning of going into more data-centric field. After that, I, I had a couple of good people around me and it was about 2014 mm-hmm. and there was a new regulation that came into play and it was actually my father that brought it to my attention that these big companies needed help with chemical regulations, identifying what chemicals were going to be banned, what new information was there, having an early alert system. And so we designed this whole thing. We called it Subvise. And we had BASF using us. We had Michelin using us. It didn't quite take off in the way I hoped it would. We ended up selling to a competitor back in 2016, I want to say. And... Then it was in 2017, in January, when I was thinking of my next steps, that blockchain started to take off. It was my father again who came to me and said, watch this TED Talk, blockchain, it looks amazing. How could we use this? And I was like, isn't that a way of that people buy drugs on the internet? Isn't that well blockchain is used for (laughs) magic? And I watched uh, a TED Talk on Ethereum. And that was the first time when I was like, wow, we could use this for anywhere where there's a lack of trust and a need to disintermediate different parties. And so we started thinking, how could we use this? Maybe for chemicals, maybe with some people that have already, were already in our network. And the one thing that everyone seemed to have an issue with was their raw materials. Where do they come from? Under what conditions were they produced? Are we funding conflict with it? And so that was sort of the tack that we took. And I started speaking to anyone who would about what, what the problems in the raw material were, how, how they have attempted to address them in the past, what worked, what didn't work, and Mind Spider was born. Could you maybe take a step back and give the audience um, your perspective on what are some of the top trends that you are seeing in blockchain? If, if the noise around blockchain was high two years ago and has subsided, I have a little bit of a role to play, not a huge one, because I had a podcast back then about blockchain. I 
don't really do it anymore. I participate in your podcast uh, and other people's, but there was a lot of excitement in 2017 and I wanted to be part of it. And I remember at the time not knowing that much about the grander trends around blockchain. It was as a very different type of technology, distributed systems, very different way of thinking about how systems can operate. And so my approach was to start a podcast and talk to Again, everyone who would speak to me, bring them on my show, ask them how they've designed, why uh, why theirs was the good one. And I I learned a lot from doing that. What I saw in 2017 was a lot of people jumping on a hype train because they thought they could get rich. And, And that is honestly normal. And the only difference with blockchain and cryptocurrency of 2017 versus maybe a startup in Silicon Valley during the dot-com boom is number one, the time window as startups, you know, they can take about 10 years to grow into a sizable thing. And number two, who was involved? So it wasn't the people who knew the founders who could invest and then some VCs, it was average people could invest in anything. And of course, this means that there was opportunity at one on the one hand for Uh, mom and pop investors. And then there was uh, a much larger propensity to illicit (laughs) projects. I think everyone remembers things like BitConnect and other scams that were out there that were just designed to steal people's money. And I think that the 2017 and late 2017 boom being followed by the falling knife of 2018 did cool a lot of people's passion for investing in blockchain and crypto with good reason. A lot of people lost money. And what I did see, however, was there was no change in corporate interest in blockchain. That never dipped, it never, it never went away because corporates think much more long-term. Hmm. than individual investors. Corporates, for the most part, didn't buy cryptocurrencies expecting they would go to 10 times the value to sell them and then convert their profits into Bitcoin. They didn't touch that. What they were interested in is, can you use this new technology to make paper trails, to speed along transactions into new markets, to provide alternate ways of investing? These were the questions around the big corporates and they're much more long-term. If you think of how big that the Bitcoin market was, even at its peak, it was something like 200 billion, which is the size of a small hedge fund. And so large industry is, is thinking much more long-term. What are the, the goals of tomorrow? What are the really big opportunities that we can uh, get into? And I haven't seen that abate at all. In fact, a lot of development. Hmm. Now, The positive side of these boom and bust cycles, where everyone is excited about this technology and puts in money, is that you get a lot of development happening. You get new tools, you get new developers who know how to deal with this technology and how to adapt it. And the the technology base, this, and we saw this with early 90s, if you remember what that was like, if you wanted to start a e-commerce site, you had to buy a computer. You had to buy a server and you had to have your own setup. Nowadays, you don't do that. 
you would you, you set up a website with an online service and have your database stored on Amazon. And this is the result of new tools coming into play is that you don't have to have a 200,000 investment in a computer that will manage your website just to have a website. And in the same way, now that we've had all of this investment, you have a lot more ability to use this blockchain in new and exciting ways. And, uh, you know, Ethereum was an important development of that. But I mean, in the early days of Bitcoin, if I was to send you the wrong amount of Bitcoin, like uh, you had to do it in multiples and you could lose part of parts of your Bitcoin for setting up the transaction. There's a lot of uh, of development that has gone on that has made blockchain applications much more suitable for corporate. And I think I that, that this is part of the excitement is uh, that we're starting to see some level of maturity in these uh, applications. Where are the opportunities for blockchain in the corporates? Generally with blockchain, anything solving a problem of trust mm-hmm. is going to be important. So if you have multiple parties that do not trust each other, So for example, regulatory, I want to put up some documents that prove that I was doing what I was supposed to do so I can show the regulators and show nothing has gone, has gone on. I want to have perhaps a supply chain history, of course, that's what I deal with, but, but it's important because supply chain participants don't necessarily trust speed of transactions. The number of middlemen that happen in a traditional transaction to move money from one side of the globe to the other is astounding. And and this is a really interesting use case is if you can move actual value from one side of the globe to the other directly as opposed to uh, going through so many layers of middlemen. And there, and there are different types of payments. I'm not a banker, so, but I know that there's differences between them and, and they all have sort of different needs. And so this is an area that uh, people are digging into as well. Uh, uh, paperwork streamlining. So things like electronic bills of lading, things that would allow different regulators to talk to each other for faster customs clearing. I remember speaking to someone about uh, waste transport, things of that nature, where if you process material like metals uh, in one place and you want to transport the waste to somewhere else because it's actually an input into another process, then you have problems with its classification and with the paperwork and it can take weeks to transport it even across a few countries. Hmm. And so these are the the type of areas where having digital, secure, unchangeable data can give confidence to people that have to interact with that data so they don't have these delays. Well, let me ask you now specifically about MindSpider. Can you tell the listeners what problem you're solving at MindSpider and who has this problem? MindSpider is a blockchain for supply chain traceability specifically designed for the mineral industry. So we actually got started with a slightly more specific problem than we're addressing today. Our problem that we started with was how can we ensure that minerals that are dug out of the ground in one area of the world, that we can track them to another area of the world and be sure money hasn't leaked out to armed militias along the way. I think that what we've seen in the past couple of years is that that's a very important and difficult problem. But there's a much broader problem in the mineral supply chain of how can you 
get supply chain data passed between different participants while guarding their trade secrets, their privacy, and their transparency at the same time. And so MindSpider's protocol, or you can think of it as a bit of like the internet for responsible supply chain information, was created to have a way of transmitting this information from participant to participant in a secure way. And what we've done on top of that is we've built an application. And the applications that you can build on top of the MindSpider protocols can solve specific problems. So we can build and we have built an application that manages this conflict funding to, to be able to say, okay, we're collecting data from a mine site. That's everything you need to prove to regulators that you've been responsible and you can import into Europe. We can put any other type of data on this chain now as well. And so we can build a application for how much, how many carbon emissions were at each uh, level of the supply chain. Ultimately, what we've created this, this toolbox, this set of tools that can secure data into blockchain certificates. These certificates live on the blockchain and get linked to the different participants in the supply chain. So the person before you, the person afterwards, putting together a network or a mesh of trust. And what this does is this creates a new environment where participants in this web of trust can know I've purchased from responsible sources and now I can showcase this responsibility to my customers and give me a better market edge. I see. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. First of all, it sounds like a fantastic problem to focus on, but why should blockchain be the technology to solve this problem? And who is this most valuable to? Well, the answer for blockchain is that it's a solution to the problem of trust. In the mineral supply chain, you've got a lot of different actors with different motivations, and they don't necessarily trade data very efficiently or very well, or, and sometimes they don't want to trade that at all. Minerals, to d- even to this day, can be bought and sold anonymously. And what we're trying to do is get to a point where trading minerals anonymously becomes the exception instead of the norm. And this has always been sort of the problem of responsible sourcing. Blockchain can can help with a number of the problems in the mineral supply chain because of its features. So first of all, you've got the ability to encrypt data into these digital blockchain certificates with the keys of the data owner. What this means is that the owner of the data is the one who's in control. They can decrypt it. Everyone else may be able to see that data exists and it's unchanged but only the owner of the data has the key to unlock it and read it. By having a system that's like this, companies feel more free to share data about the origins of their material because they know it's not going to be sitting on a server run by a a third-party company who might be able to read it and run into uh, all sorts of issues, including uh, vulnerable trade secrets or antitrust or anything like that. But you're absolutely right. It's an incredibly complex thing, and each mineral although they're very similar, will have slightly different characteristics. So for example, gold is much more valuable in much smaller quantities and is harder to do traceability on without some sort of uh, government assistance in, in providing a legal way to buy and sell it, in providing licensing to miners, some sort of formalization of the process. Right. Whereas other bulk materials 
it's much easier to track the origins of, uh, of where they're coming from because they have to be shipped in large quantities. I see. And is what MindSpider is doing and the application of MindSpider applicable to both of those scenarios or is it better for one versus the other? It's absolutely applicable in both scenarios because we've designed this system to be flexible about the data that we collect. Okay. So if we're operating in an environment where we have the assistance of government or where then we can mirror the data that's being collected already in that regard. If we're at a place that has a large scale mine that is doing a lot of data collection already, then we can mirror their existing data that they're collecting and then uh, communicate that to the next players in the supply chain. Got it. So when you went with this to the potential buyers of this, are people willing to pay for this traceability and this transparency of the supply chain? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, it's been a challenge to find the right business model. If you're moving in the direction of doing something in emerging tech, this is the hardest thing about doing any sort of emerging tech is identifying the business model. And we had to go through a number of test phases in order to figure out something. Our initial idea was to do transactional. So if someone was selling a material on uh, on the blockchain, then they would pay a certain percentage of the material. It seems to make sense. And that's a very easy way of showing the value. Here's the problem with that, is that doing a traceability scheme is different than running a marketplace. And the people buying and selling are the ones who end up paying for that transaction fee and in and that means that you need to get purchasers using your system our system is geared toward compliance people compliance people don't buy and sell metals and so that business model didn't work very well mm. and it would only work well if you wanted to make a marketplace and that's that's a whole other level of complexity so what we ended up going to was a subscription model where we would charge per account in a very traditional software as a service mm-hmm. model. Why? Because the people who are our customers who would actually benefit from this data were used to paying for this type of subscription. So it fit within the way that they were used to budgeting. They could justify it to their bosses. Uh, but this, it wasn't uh, a quick process for us to figure this out. Uh, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of experimentation before we figured it out. Got it. Got it. So you use the word emerging tech, and I want to dig into that a little bit more. Why are you calling this emerging tech and what does emerging tech mean? Emerging tech is really Uh, thought of as things such as AI, machine learning, blockchain, big data, things that are uh, emerging tech trends where people are excited about them. They see the application of them, but we haven't seen uh, large-scale commercial implementations uh, spread across the... I would argue blockchain is absolutely an emerging tech because most of the applications that we see have been experimental proofs of concept. There have been some limited commercial implementations, but they've been small. And I think that we're going to see an explosion of of actual industrial scalable use cases in the next few years. This is always the case. No one wants to go first. Right. 
right? And uh, people want to run a pilot project and see that it works before scaling up. Of course they do. And this is absolutely normal. But blockchain is absolutely in that category. I would love to hear how you went about securing funding because of the fact that what you're doing at MindSpider is in the area of emerging tech. What was It was hard. Yeah. Well, (laughs) there's a lot in there. Our original idea back a million years ago was to do an ICO. Blockchain is really a unique technology in that you can print your own money. I often describe blockchain as a way of creating unique digital items. And if you think of a digital item, you think of a sound file or a a movie that can be copied a million times. Um, With blockchain, you know which one is the original and therefore it can store value. And so if the thing, the digital item you're creating is like a coin, like a Bitcoin, it can store financial value. Now, obviously, we're not using it that way. We're creating uh, digital certificates that store compliance value and, and, and responsibility and trust. But we did have the idea of having an economy on our system because we were originally thinking that it would be transactional. And when it didn't work out for a number of reasons, because it's really hard to manage the the economics of a system like that. And as soon as you take any sort of uh, equity investor, it becomes a little bit unwieldy to try and have a token economy at the same time, because essentially you have two different groups of investors that you both have to keep both happy. And that's uh, a little bit of a nightmare. It's not that I don't believe that token economies should work. There have been a number that have worked quite well. but usually they are ones where it's the only way it can work. Mm-hmm. So for example, Bitcoin works, Ethereum works. Why? Because there's no one centrally in charge of them. They don't have equity investors that they have to keep happy. And the, the token is meant to keep the, uh, to incentivize and keep a distributed economy going of, of different players who either contribute their computing power, their software developments, or, or their computer hardware, or what have you, in an ecosystem where, uh, where there's no one at the middle with money to give out and pay people to make them do. MindSpider wasn't exactly like that as much as we wanted it to be. Where, partly because it's not a completely trustless system or a completely anonymous system. What we wanted was to create a distributed system, it's true, where there wasn't a central authority figure who was in charge of the blockchain. That was really important to us. But at the same time, we couldn't just have anyone join like Bitcoin did. Because the whole point of this is to know where your metals come from and under what conditions they were produced. And so you you have to know who's there. And so the option of printing our own money, as tempting as it was, we decided not to go with. We approached a number of venture capitalists to try and uh, fund the company that way. And And we ended up raising almost a million euros from angel investors, but never from VCs. And the reason was because VCs do not like emerging tech in general. At least in Europe, they don't. It's hard to build a business model around something that has both an ecosystem component and a traditional software as a service business component. There were two different things that were trying to exist in one company. Mm. And I think that 
where we're at now and with the learnings of the past few years, we're much closer to being VC investable than we have been in the past. But what we needed was risk tolerant capital. And where we got that was in grants. Mm. European Union has uh, a number of different grant schemes available for emerging technology, specifically technology that they call it uh, tech readiness level six or seven, where you've proven the concept, you see that it works, you have partners on board, but it's not yet at a point where it has a scalable business model. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Horizon 2020 grant is meant to address. That's what some of these other grants are meant to address. And we did an application for that back in 2018, 19. What, what year is this? Uh, <laughs> back, 2020. Exactly. We applied last year and, uh, and we were awarded this grant because we basically met all of the requirements. What, yeah, is, that? what te- is it that they are looking they for? They were looking for a promising technology that had potential to really benefit Europe, where the team had trouble raising money, not because they weren't uh, a capable team or didn't have a good business concept, but because the technology itself needed additional funding to get where it was going. Mm -hmm. We had grown large enough that we were a little too large of a company to be interesting to angel investors anymore, but we weren't quite big enough to be interesting to VCs. And it was that gap that that this grant was meant to solve. Okay, so what kind of company should approach these type of institutions? They have a tech readiness level assessment around six or seven is what they're looking for. So they don't want companies where there's three founders at a school who have a PowerPoint presentation. They want something that's been built. They would love to see partners. They want to see benefit for the European ecosystem. And they want to see that it's difficult for them to raise money elsewhere, at least at this stage. So right now, anything that fits into the European Green New Deal is hot. So thing around carbon capture, carbon emissions, around rewilding, biodiversity, lots, uh, lots around that. COVID relief obviously is quite interesting. And smart cities and uh, IoT tend to be hot like that. Okay, got it. So because it is about the supply chain, and I know that the supply chain has been disrupted in so many different ways. How has COVID impacted what you're doing? On the one hand, it made things a little bit more difficult. And on the other hand, it made a lot of people interested in us. It's been a bit of a double-edged sword. We've had a couple of projects just halt because funding dried up because we had one large project that we were working with a a big manufacturing company that had ties all throughout Southeast Asia. They were all throughout Wuhan province. And uh, this was in the spring and they just said, you know, to deal with this. So we have seen some disruptions in, in our project flow. On the other hand, We've also seen a lot of companies saying, you know, we need to get a better handle on our supply chain. We need to know what's going on. And for the most part, they don't even know exactly what they need to know. So, for example, there have been companies that have approached us concerned about uh, supply chain disruption. Can we know that our suppliers have stock on hand, that their business hasn't been disrupted so that we don't get caught off guard down the road? And this is a legitimate use of supply chain traceability software. We also have a couple of regulations that aren't slowing down. So the EU conflict minerals regulation is coming into force in January. And with COVID, it means that people are less likely to travel 
And so if you need to do due diligence on metals and make sure mm. that you're not funding uh, human rights abuses, you need that information included in the purchase of the metal. And that's what we're focused on right now is addressing those, those specific disruptions and, and seeing how we can widen a bit the appetite for this. So when I'm thinking about your next milestone and milestone after that in terms of your growth trajectory, what is the way you evaluate? What do you look for? When, you know, when it's a SaaS business, I know what the metrics are. What are the metrics for? That's hard to answer. If I'm talking about blockchain companies in general, some of them don't even have a business model, right? A lot of them, their business model is around the contributing to a system. Like I'm imagining something like a, a pure blockchain company, like Ethereum or one of the competitors or one of the newer ones. You would look at things like hash rate. How many computers are, are being part of this? How many miners, because the, the people that contribute their computers to find tokens are called miners. How many miners are participating? Do they believe that this token is going to go up or that it's going to be profitable? In terms of these primary level blends, uh, how many other companies are building on top of them? On the other hand, if you're a blockchain app, it's very, very similar to a traditional business. You're solving a problem for your customers. How many customers are you solving the problem for? You've got a different maybe way of implementing something that's more traditional, but maybe you use very similar metrics once you get into a higher level. Right. If I think about your customers that you're selling this supply chain traceability solution to, why should they buy from you? Are, are there other people that are solving this problem in different ways? And what's unique about how you're doing it compared to your competitors? I'm definitely the friendliest. Um, <laughs> the, the number of people who are doing this type of very specific supply chain for minerals where you know policy and regulation, th there are few and far between. There are not many of us. There are some others out there. They're all good people. I'm on good terms with all of them. And, and when working with them, I, I, I highly uh, support because what's needed right now is not you know, a couple of emerging blockchain companies who've taken the risk to scrap it out over a very small market. No, what's needed is to expand this market so that sourcing responsibly becomes normal instead of the exception. Now, that said, I, that we've taken the approach that we have, most of the time, it's much easier to build on an existing set of tools rather than build your own toolbox. We've built our own toolbox, partly because I make terrible life choices and want to <laughs> and take the hard way. But it was because we saw a need for, for solving a problem in a very specific way. So if you're in the blockchain space, you may hear of a difference between public blockchains and private blockchains. And a private blockchain makes it much easier to determine who has access to what data through a series of passwords. That's the advantage. Uh, the disadvantage is that there is going to be uh, a, a bit of a gatekeeping there because someone has control over who joins and who doesn't. The way we're approaching this is to have a set of tools that can be governed by consortium and that we call it a public permission blockchain. So everyone who uses it has uh, a key access to their own certificates and their own data, uh, but there's no central company that has 
complete control over the entire thing. As the technology matures, there's going to be a lot of variations on this and a lot of different ways of implementing this. And so I'm sure that the lines are going to blur depending on what everyone needs. But our main issue right now is the governance of the system and whether it's being run with a series of nodes or whether it's being in a private permission. I see. What do you feel is needed this to really make an impact in the supply chain? The biggest thing is people demanding to know where their products come from and under what conditions they have been produced. Because I'm going to tell you a story. I remember speaking to someone from the World Economic Forum. I guess it would have been about a year and change ago. And they told me something to the effect of 50 years ago, it was normal to buy and sell pharmaceuticals anonymously. And yeah, if you can imagine that. And there was a big change that happened 50 years ago in that you can't do that anymore. Like pharmaceuticals are much more heavily regulated now. Executives were not happy about that. Change is hard, but it was necessary. 20 years ago, a similar change happened in logging and lumber and wood in order to fight deforestation and illegal harvesting of wood products. And there is no reason why we can't have a similar change in mining metals. There's no reason for metals to be bought and sold anonymously. And I think that that's the future. But for that to be the future, first of all, you have to have the technology that enables it to be a relatively straightforward transition because metals, you know, there's a lot of money tied up in that and it's difficult to make a change. But you also have to have that demand that end users demand to know that five-year-old didn't dig the metal that went into my cell phone battery out of a pit instead of going to school. That's that's kind of, I think, for me, the biggest question mark. When I think about pharmaceutical, the example you gave, and medicines, I can see why knowing where it came from, having regulation around it is so critical. But when I think about something like, I'm going to pick something frivolous, the bed sheet that I use whether it's really organic, whether it's really coming from Egypt when it says Egyptian cotton. I'm not sure that as a consumer, I care that much about it. Maybe there are certain categories like pharmaceuticals where this is going to be much more applicable and they're going to be the early adopters. And then as technology matures, it becomes easier to do this for other things, even if there isn't a consumer demand for it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you're seeing that out. We care about what we have control over. Prime example, like if I go to the store, you know, I've got no way of telling if product A or product B have a better carbon emission. And so what am I going to do? Call up each company, ask them to give me their data. I I have five things to buy at the store today. And, you know, it, it just feels hopeless. I need regulation. I need someone to come and and make that decision for me. I need the experts at the companies who spend their time to try and reduce those emissions. And of course, my choices matter, but they matter in a limited capacity because of the control I have. I think that's what's needed is a sort of societal shift. And part of that shift happens when change becomes possible. If you go uh, to purchase a product and you see that product A has gone through a process where in the product, all of the battery in the product comes from sources that have been certified and responsible and they know where it came from. And product B hasn't. 
it gives you power to make a more informed decision. And if the difference in price is reasonable, then maybe you, you as a consumer make a choice. If the price isn't reasonable, then maybe there needs to be some sort of standards by which everyone is at the same playing field so that everyone's got to at least guarantee that they're not putting children to, to work in the mines. I remember speaking with someone early on in my journey about why it was that you had these human rights abuses in the mineral supply chain in the first place. And it's unique to minerals. It's, this has been going on in textiles and in, in food and in exactly. anything you can imagine. Yeah. The reason is because of human nature, where we see what we have control over. You and I have the problem of going and buying products and making, and we look at the differences we see in two practically identical products and we choose the cheaper one. Right. Well, companies have the same problem. If you're in purchasing in a company and you want to buy a component like a battery, then you'll see only the difference in price and maybe exactly. quality, maybe, maybe some things. But if you don't see human rights, then you just say, well, look, I'll, I'll buy the cheaper one. And maybe next year, after a year of buying batteries, from, you've been supplying me for a year. You've probably gotten more efficient. You know my systems. I want a 10% discount next year. And then I'm judged on that. And if I don't ask for that 10% discount, I get in trouble. I could lose my bonus. I could, you know, even get reprimanded or suffer things at my job. So you, not wanting to lose a customer, say, sure, we can do that. Uh, but in order to give me that 10% discount, you have to ask your suppliers for a 10% discount. And they respond in the same way. And this travels and ripples down the line until it gets eventually to someone who says, sure, I can give you a 10% discount. I just have to make these three people work for free. And... Mm. You and I don't see that because we're so far from it. It's, it's an unintended consequence of me just wanting a better price. And the answer isn't me paying a higher price either, because if I pay more of a price to you, that doesn't guarantee that you're not going to demand the discount. Really, what's needed is a way of seeing what's gone into these products and providing some sort of alternative metrics so that companies can make informed decisions and, and creating sort of an environment where you say, it's normal to know where my materials come from. It's normal to know that the trade has been fair or that, mm -hmm. the, that the workers haven't been exposed to pollutants or that, that they didn't provide me this price by dumping waste into the water. So does that mean that if a company is using your information, does it add a lot of cost to their end product because they now have this information from the supply chain embedded in it? That's a very good question. The answer is probably. But <laughs> the thing is, in a, it's hard to say that in general terms because we're talking about really, really complex systems with a broad brushstroke. So what I can tell you is that most of the companies that we work with have already done this work. And most of the times, this work and the information about this work that they've done to be responsible gets lost. They can communicate it to their immediate customers, but then the customers of their customers don't receive that information. And they've got no way of proving that the metal that they get and the components that they get actually came from this responsible source. So we're actually bridging that gap for them. 
That's a really good answer. So my last question on this is, what are currently the use cases or applications or products for which MindSpider has a solution? You said minerals a number of times. Is it all minerals? Is it specific minerals? Are there other applications of your technology now? So five second history. MindSpider has been doing a number of pilot projects where we use our tools in the lead battery supply chain and in the tin supply chain tracking out of responsible and known areas. And with the lead battery supply chain, we were going in the other direction, seeing how far back in the supply chain we could go and to find out what data we could collect, what policies did the different companies have and getting company level information. We have a new product that's coming out in November, uh, which we're going to be rolling out with funding uh, partially provided by EIT Raw Materials, which is built upon the learnings of those early products. So this product uh, we're calling OreSource, and it's basically collecting a set of data from from mines that uh, mines and smelters that would give you what you need in order to import into Europe. And so that's a solution that we've got. We've also got this set of tools where we can adapt to different sets of data that you want to collect from your supply chain. So, for example, you can send out a request for information to all of your suppliers and their suppliers and say, hey, look, we want to know, do you have these policies? And they can fill them out and then you've got a supply map of who provided the information and who didn't want to provide the information. And so this gives you at least a better idea of what you uh, of who's supplying you and what you're Receive. In terms of industry, it's applicable everywhere. And we've been approached by companies, not just in the mineral industry. We've been approached by chemicals, by textiles, and by uh, really interesting use cases such as waste management, where they need to keep track of contaminants in the waste. Not all of them, we haven't built custom solutions for all of these things, but the, these general set of tools is definitely applicable in all of these cases. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, I think that gives the listeners a good idea of uh, what you're doing and some of the use cases and applications that they could look up MindSpider for. Absolutely. We've got a a bunch of really dedicated people who've uh, been working in a consulting manner for some of these big companies. And we've learned so much in this time. And I think it's only going to explode from here. Nathan, I really enjoyed our conversation on this very important topic. You certainly have piqued my interest. I want to go and read up more on it. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Danita, for having me. 